This is, in a way, why we're so interested in the names that people call things and what's going on underneath them. What are the vocal folds themselves doing? Mm, interesting. I mean, I think there are, there are some huge cultural changes going on, aren't there, in terms of I'm just going to use the word gender as in terms of gender expectations of voices and people's biological sex um, and how they want to use their voices. That's changing. And I Mm. think that will inform how we think about register mechanisms in the future in the same way that um, I think research into contemporary commercial music has informed our understanding of registers, simply because the early research into registers was all predicated on the male voice. And we know that the male voice, uh, this is a biological uh, male sex, is not um, the norm in... Oh, crikey. (laughs) Um, Crikey, did I say that? It's not the norm in terms of the life cycle of the voice because of the exponential change. Um, during puberty. Let's just unpack that for a moment because we are going to get we're going to get comments on this. I one. dug myself the biggest hole. I think I know how to get out of it. Though, okay, go. Because I love the way that um, colleagues across the pond talk about voices being testosterone influenced or not. Yeah, I like that too. So that's the big change. Anyway, that is a completely other conversation. And it's also one of our pop ups coming up. Isn't what it? I want to say, and this is in a way, this. Hopefully, we'll, Should we go we'll, and hide now? No, no, no. This will also underline what Juliana said, mm. which is if there is no testosterone influence, um, then the child voice and the female adult voice are actually very close together in terms of range, in terms of where the register mechanisms change. They're very, very close together. Uh, they might not be close together in timbre, but they are close together in range and mechanism issues. It's a much more linear progress of growth. Yes, Whereas the male voice, the testosterone-led voice, um, the moment testosterone hits, there are all sorts of changes that are exponentially bigger. Mm. And therefore, the range changes and the register issues change. Mm. This is a voice a podcast with Dr. Gillian Kays and Jeremy Fisher. This is a voice. Hello and welcome to This is a Voice podcast, series two, episode five, Registers, What's in a Name? Now, we were actually going to call it WTF Registers, but we didn't think that would pass the censors. So Registers, Gillian, this is a popular topic, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it's often a contentious topic. Yep. Uh, I've got a, conf- a confession to make, everybody. You've got a kafifi to make. A kafifi to make. <laughs> a kafefe. No, we, now look, let's not get political, OK? We're about to talk Registers. We can't help it. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Back in 2019, at the last Pan-European Voice Conference, I was a panellist member um, doing a masterclass, followed by some conversation between the panellists as to why they did, why they do what they do. You don't need any more info than that. I talked about how important it was for singers to find their personal comfort zone, and that in my practice, working mostly with musical theatre singers, and contemporary commercial music singers, many of whom are female, that I found it essential that they understand how to move between register mechanisms and to hand over smoothly and where they want to, and um, that I felt this was an essential part of practice. There was one lovely lady in the audience 
clearly a singer and singing teacher. And I think it was her very first voice science conference. And um, she opined that uh, registers were unnecessary and that she'd had, uh, historically, she'd had a very bad experience in her own training. She was a a little vocal on that. She was a little vocal on that, yes. Um, And uh, in due course, as I kind of continued to say why I felt it was important, there was a shout out from the audience, I disagree. Now, here we come to the confession moment, because... I forgot that I have a voice science hat and I put on my singing teacher hat and I folded my arms and I said, well, I've been teaching singing for over 40 years and I find, which wasn't a very scientific answer, because what I could have said was, what exactly is it that I've said that you disagree with and why? Uh, But being a good colleague, we met at coffee, had a hug and a chat and talked about why her experiences as a CCM singer being trained with a classical in a classical background had led her to this place. And it was very useful. It was quite salutary for me, actually, in a lot of ways. And to understand why registers are so um, contentious, because sometimes there are kind of register police around. I can remember going to voice conferences and uh, watching a paper where someone was talking about register violation. And I remember being furious. That was one of my first voice conferences, actually. Did you shout? Yeah, well, no, I didn't (laughs) shout. But I said, what is this violation? You know, the violation is in the ear of the beholder. This is an aesthetic. So that's why we're talking about it today. Plus, we recently did our second or our third um, Third. M1 and M2 pop-up workshop. Yes. And Jeremy's had a very interesting response to one of his articles. So well, we're going to go there next, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, in 2019, I put an article on the Vocal Process website called Modal Falsetto and Everything in Between. And this is basically on the misunderstandings between M1 and M2, or modal and falsetto. And it included two mythbusters. And I want to read the mythbuster out, which, well, basically the mythbuster was, uh, the myth is that you can mix modes. And... You can't. Um, That was basically my answer, which is you can't get your vocal folds to vibrate in two entirely different ways at the same time. Well, not if you want to have a career or a voice at the end of the day. Um, So I got a very interesting question that came up. It was a sort of question stroke statement from Kirk Hansen, which only came in a couple of days ago. And he said, I'm guessing that Creek, which is M0, is the same as what is often called Fry. If not, the rest of this won't make sense. Mythbuster 1 says you can't vibrate in more than one mode at a time. Discussions of bass singing sometimes speak of chest fry and, a different thing, fried chest. The names make it sound like each of these combined modes in some way. Perhaps they refer to different ways in which you can switch very quickly from one mode to another. Just a guess on my part, obviously. I'll be grateful for any information you can provide on how these relate to the discussion in this post, if at all. Thanks for your help. And I thought this was such a great question. And Mm. also, by the way, I had never up to that day heard of fried chest. Um, So I I went on YouTube and looked up what people were talking fried chest. And I just made me think of bacon and eggs. But there you go. He went wandering around YouTube. I have to say, because I think it is a very interesting question, Kirk, and we're very grateful for it. I had a little reread this morning of some of the papers that I've got in my library on vocal registers, because it was something I initially set out to research in my doctorate, but I didn't in the end. 
And it looks as though there was a report of there being 107 different names yeah. back in 1964. Well, I mean, on the webinar that we did um, on, on uh, this topic, we found 57 names for the area between F4 and F5 mm, mm. in female voice. So this is one of the reasons, because we, we give labels to an acoustic output, don't we? Yeah. Oh, well, yes, because I want to go there. Yeah, go on. This is, I want to read my answer mm. out, because um, I hope this is clear for people. And I said, hi, Kirk, that's a, such an interesting question. First, I'm going to say that the names people give sounds vary and they don't reflect what the vocal folds are doing. So one man's fried chest is another man's strobase. Think of the M's, M0, M1, M2 and M3, as the movement type of the vocal folds themselves before you add the resonance, resonance spaces above. And think of the names chest, head, falsetto, mixed, chest fry and so on as being the sound that comes out after you add the resonating spaces. So you still can't mix M's, but you could do M0 with a different resonating space to produce a different version. And creating a chest resonance, in inverted commas, above an M0 vibration will impact the vibration subtly because of back pressure, changes in downflow, but it won't actually move the M0 into M1 nor will it have one vocal fold vibrating in M0 and another in M1. It's why even equating M0 with fry or creak or M1 with chest or modal is dodgy because fry is the final outcome rather than the vocal fold action. The art is to hear through and underneath the resonance to what the vocal folds themselves are doing. And I felt really quite quite strongly and quite mm, clear about this, mm. which is when we talk about the M numbers, M0, M1, M2 and M3, we are talking about how the vocal folds themselves behave. And this is before the sound comes out. This is right at vocal fold level before the resonating spaces really get into play. Now, that is a very simplified version because mm. the resonating spaces do get into play because of downflow, upflow, downflow. And therefore, they will have some effect on the vocal folds. But if you like, if you're in M1, changing the resonating space will make the vocal folds behave in a very slightly different way, but they will still be in an M1 vibration. As far as we know, the impact of the resonating chambers, we know it's not a linear event nope. now, voice. As far as we know, it doesn't change the vibratory mechanism. Well, if you think about how the vibratory mechanism itself is made, in M0, um, everything is very slack, it's very loose, and the airflow is very low. If you think about an M1, then you have all the layers vibrating and they're vibrating quite evenly. The thing about an M0 is that it is a different vibrational pattern to M1. I'm just going to, yeah, I think you, you've clarified what I said, because of course it does change the vibration, but it doesn't change it into a different mechanism. Nope. So let's... Let me, let me, just, let mm. me just go into this, because this is quite an interesting one and it is very, it's quite fiddly. I want you to think of an M1 vibration, which is basically um, a bottom to top vibration where if you were put to put your hands together, the little fingers would um, meet first and then the rest of the hand would roll up to meet and then the bottom little fingers would come apart, but the top fingers would stay together and then the whole thing moves apart. And it's a real rolling action and that's the definitive view of M1 action. What is interesting is, for instance, we have just done an SOVT course and we're about to do one um, in a couple of days' time. Mm. When you start to use SOVT uh, techniques, whether they're passive or active, they will 
change very slightly the way, for instance, that the top of the vocal fold stays together. It might stay together longer. It might stay together with less pressure. It might square up a bit more. Mm. But nevertheless, the whole vocal fold is still doing that rolling action. So you're still in an M1 vibration. It's just that the SOVT stuff has caused it to maybe stay together a little longer, maybe uh, just to ease off the pressure underneath it so you don't need as much subglottal pressure to make it move. It will rebalance very slightly, but it won't change the vibration. If you want to change the vibration to go from M1 to M2, or in vernacular, modal to falsetto, then what you're going to do is you're going to release the muscle that's inside the vocal folds. SOVT will still affect the vocal folds, but they won't affect the vibration. They won't change the vibration mode. What changes the vibration mode in this case is releasing the muscle inside the vocal fold. I'm hoping all of that makes sense. It's like SOVT is above and has some effect, but the mode itself is caused by the vocal folds. That sounds reasonable to me. I think you've explained it well. So where do we go from here? I'm going to talk a little bit more history, actually, to explain how the term mechanism came about. Mm. Um. Garcia II, I think, was one of the first people to comment on registers because he observed different register mechanisms on the laryngoscope. And um, he started off with two-register theory. But uh, Marchese, who was one of the most famous singing teachers around at that time, uh, was uh, very upset at the idea of two-register theory and insisted that uh, women had a third register which is often referred to as the middle register. And I can tell you that there's a whole mass of research um, looking for the hole in the middle, as Harry Hullian described it, uh, which is kind of one of the reasons why we don't talk about the mix. Interestingly, from Garcia, there's been, I think, there's been a timeline. You can look at um, research papers in the 1970s that confirm this idea that if we think of registers as being a laryngeal event, it makes life easier. And then if we go forward into the 80s and up into the early um, 2000s, we look at the French research from uh, Rubo, um, Henrich and Castellengo, where they've done extensive study with quite large subject groups on register mechanisms. And it's from them that we get the M word. Because the great thing about the M1, M2 M0, which would be um, fry, and M3, which is whistle, is that, you know, we, we don't have some of these labels that are very confusing. We're just talking about what's happening at the level of the vocal folds, as Jeremy's explained. And that's why we use this in our training. And I have to say, I find it's just so useful. Every teacher that we work with finds it incredibly helpful. I think where the confusion lies is not in the in the mechanisms themselves, because that's fairly straightforward. I think the confusion is actually allocating names to the sounds that come out. So, and in a way, this is exactly what I was talking about in the reply to the article and also in the article itself. Um, we will put the article link up in the show notes uh, underneath. And people do get very upset about this because they get very attached to uh, certain acoustic labels, perceptual things that they associate with registers. And I think as a, a trainer of trainers, you have to be quite sensitive to that. It was even even to the point where, um, because people misunderstand how those mechanisms are caused, 
then they can actually mislabel a whole load of things. Mm -hmm. So the whole business about a breathy sound, which is really fascinating. Breathy sound is used a lot in various guises in all sorts of music. Mm. Like 90% of the world music has breathy sound in it somewhere. One of the very few um, genres that doesn't have it very often at all is classical music. It's very rare that you will do a breathy sound. You might do a leaky sound, mm. but because of the the genre in which you're required to sing acoustically, so you're you're essentially you have to project. Um, breathy sounds don't project that well, mm. but they're wonderful on microphone. So anyway, that was a digression. Um, if you think that breathiness is caused by the vocal folds coming apart, that's fine. What's interesting is that you can have breathy M1 and a breathy M2. So therefore, immediately you've got, well, how do I label that? And that's, there's some very nice research on that, just going back into my science head by Christian Herbst. Christian Herbst. Where he looked at uh, what he called abducted, so that means slightly apart vocal folds, and adducted yeah. versions of mechanisms one and mechanism two. Um, if you haven't come across those words, I always think of adducted as being adding the vocal folds together mm-hmm. and therefore they're, they're together and clean sound. And abducted means that they they move apart and yeah. therefore there's breathier sound. To take away. So you can have, abdu- in, in his research, he did adducted chest, which is a clear chest sound, abducted chest, which is a breathy chest sound, adducted falsetto, which is a breathy falsetto. Uh, sorry, adducted is a clear falsetto, <laughs> and abducted is a breathy falsetto. Get your abs and ads right. Sorry. So why are we banging on about this, and in particular about mechanisms one and two? Because if you think about the pitch range of most musical writing, and I know that's a massive generalisation if we're thinking across genres, um, even in the Western Hemisphere. But if we think about that, mostly what we're going to be singing in is Mechanism 1 and Mechanism 2. And we know there's, you know, a whole community of singers who produce fabulous whistle. And obviously there's a community of um, low bass singers who will sing a lot in vocal fry or pulse, or we call it creep, don't we? Fried chest. Fried chest, bless. (laughs) Love that. Um, You know, they're not... That most of the stuff that we're singing is going to be in mechanism one and mechanism two. Yeah. And uh, that's why we run this particular pop-up workshop. Yeah. Uh, there's one thing I'd like to say as well about, you know, the labels of chest and head and falsetto, which again is, you know, could cause, we could get so much kickback from this. Oh, let's do, let's do um, uh, a podcast just on chest, head and falsetto. That would be not fun at all. Let's not. Let's not. <laughs> uh, interestingly, I'm just going to read this out. This is from the um, Rubo et al. paper. Rubo, I should say. Um, mechanism one, and they've got some labels here that are commonly used. Modal, normal. Chest, heavy. Thick, voix mixed, but only in the male voice. Uh, mixed, male voice. Uh, voce finta, male voice. Head, operatic, male voice. Mechanism two, falsetto, head, women's voices, loft, light, thin, voix mixed, women, mixed, women. Most of that I'm on board with. Some I'm not. I think that some, there's another paper that I think was produced later that that they talked about 
Uh, they were looking for the hole in the middle, the voie mixte, and they concluded that it could either be done on a mechanism one or mechanism two. I'll go with that. Which is how we go along yeah. with it. I'm I taking think... a paper away from Jeremy now because he's just going to find I am. I am. find something he disagrees with. I am. I mean, the implication of that, which is really interesting, is that uh, women's head voice is um, based on an M2, which I sort of agree with, but mm. there is also in contemporary Commercial singing, people do a light M1 and either think of it as um, uh, a head voice or a, or a falsetto or a chest voice or a something. And this is, again, where the labels start mm, to get problematic mm. because the reason that we put labels on things is simply because we want to differentiate. And people go, oh, that's heavy, that's my chest voice. Mm. But interestingly, when they do a finer chest voice, they go, well, that doesn't actually feel the same or even sound the same. It's lighter, it's not as dark, it's not as heavy. Therefore, I've got to give it a different name. Yeah. And this is, I think, where it gets really interesting. And it's actually what I said in the end of my reply is that you can train your ears to hear pretty much what the vocal folds are doing underneath the outcome. All of these names are about outcome. Mm. Sometimes, in order to find out, and again, this is something that we do a lot and um, we train our teachers to, to do, excuse mm. me, with the individual singer, in other words, the singer in the room in front of you, mm -hmm. sometimes you'll need to contrast and compare you don't always know which mechanism they're in until you've heard them do the other mechanism. Mm -hmm. Now, I really liked the um, the research from the French team because they said the only way to really find out where the mechanisms change is to get people to do glissandi. Mm -hmm. They're not revealed because singers are very good um, at disguising register changes because many of us train to do that. Oh, superb. Um, oh. It's not easy to spot them when a singer is singing a song because there are all kinds of acoustic things that we can do to uh, disguise the um, mechanism changes. Yes. So now I'm going back to why I think M1 and M2 are so important because it's about how we navigate our vocal pitch range, isn't it? Yeah. If you have a song of a range of a tenth, if you're a woman and if you're a musical theatre singer or a, um, a contemporary commercial music singer, in that tenth, you may well have to navigate a register change. You might not, and that depends but you what, might. Let's talk about key as well, because key is also vital in this one. If you're a musical theatre singer and you have a song, a range of a tenth, and you could do G3, which is G below middle C, to B4, and you would stay in M1, the whole time without really blinking. Mm. If you were a classical singer and you had a song that covered a tenth and it was G3 to B4, well, first of all, you'd be considered a contralto because sopranos hardly ever go to G3. Um, and secondly, even going to B4, you would be unlikely to take your chest voice all the way up mm. to B4. Whereas in contemporary commercial and musical theatre singing, that's completely expected. Mm. So immediately you're looking at mm. a genre and here you're looking at genre expectations. Mm -hmm. If, a, if a, a female opera singer took their chest voice up to B natural for a seventh of a middle C, it would be considered crude. There would be something wrong with it. Mm -hmm. they, you know, they, they don't have the technique. And in fact, it's not that. It's that the expectation of the sound is not what the audience want to hear. You know, this is very much a genre thing. Well, the musical writing simply um, doesn't, 
allow for that yeah. you know the kind of flow sound that's needed in the, the legato etc etc yeah. makes it very difficult for a female voice to navigate that if she's singing in her mechanism one by which we mean a version of chest voice i'm going to say that there are going to be comments going agnes Balzer <laughs> took hers up to z and i'm going yeah I, there are always exceptions to the rule um but interestingly you look at the exceptions and you go, they're exceptions, therefore the rule is. And you look back at the rule and go, the vast majority of people do this. And that's an expectation mm. in the genre. Um, I like that you've talked so much about genre here, because I think what it is, you know, in terms of how do we navigate our vocal pitch range? And um, is the way that we're doing it suitable for the musical, musical culture that we belong to or the musical culture that we aspire to? That's really what it's all about. That's why we need to think about it. Mm. Otherwise, we wouldn't. Mm. Should we talk about mixing? <laughs> Shall we talk about mixing? <laughs> Is this mixing with a capital M? Mm. Well, let, let me put it this way, and as another story. Do you remember going to um, ICVT in 2017? Yeah. And that was the first time that we met Dr. Trinice Robinson. Yes, and she was presenting some of the outcomes of her um, PhD and the way that she worked to train gospel singers. Very good it was. Hi, Trinice. Almost the first thing that came out of her mouth was, listen, every time we open our mouths to sing, we are mixing. Yes. That was a moment when I shouted in the audience, preach! <laughs> and, you know, I think that's true. It is really important because... I think we perceive mix. I think we feel it as a mix. And I'm going to say this as a singer and a singing teacher. We feel like we're mixing something. So we get that sensory feedback yep. that it feels in between. Let's say we feel our chest voice as being more heavy and our um, head voice or falsetto as being more light. We feel there's something going on in between and we call that mixing. And then acoustically... Maybe somebody can't hear the difference between your mechanism one and mechanism two, or, or they can't hear that handover because it's so smooth. Mm -hmm. And then people talk about that as being a mix. Mm. And I think another thing that happens because of the use of the word mix, particularly if it has a capital M, is that sometimes it's purported to be safer and that you must learn to mix instead of using your mechanism one. Mm. And that's actually to do with how much pressure and volume you use with your mechanism one. I'm, I'm going to quote another colleague, actually. Uh, Jeannie Levetri. Jeannie, hello. I love the way that you work on this particular topic and the way that you teach people to navigate between M1 and M2. You wrote a long time ago about just as a female can sing very loudly in her head voice, she can also sing very softly in her chest voice. She yep. does not have to do it loud. Nope. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, people say, well, that must be a mix. Mm. Jeremy, do you want to do some demos of uh, singing in a quieter okay. mechanism? One? Yeah. It just might be interesting for people to hear. Um Okay, let me do, I'll do a um, five-note scale, and I'll probably move around in pitch as well because there's quite a lot to show <laughs> when, you, when you're talking about this subject. Um, let me do... Uh, that, that'll do. Okay, so if we go that something slightly more classical, slightly darker... Uh, 
I can tell you what that feels like. It feels like the top note flies off somewhere. Now that's right on my gear change, okay? If I take away some of that darkness and some of the sort of down feel, it sort of feels slightly like it's more in the same place. If I take off even more, it feels identical. Now I'm going to back off the volume a little bit. Much gentler. I am still in M1, but there are some women who would hear that and go and say that I was in falsetto. We find that happens quite a lot in yeah. our teaching, don't we? Yeah. Um, that uh, the th- the final one would be identified as a head voice. Now, let me go up a little. So, can I just say, yeah. because you did acoustic changes. Yes. And you also did uh, pressure flow changes. I did, but I didn't do any um, register changes. I didn't do any mode changes. No there, there mechanism change All in M1. All in M1. Okay. So, let me go up a little. Now, this is interesting because that's all in M1 too. Sorry, that's all in M1 as well. (laughs) Oh, look, I just did a mix. Um, This is really interesting because that feels very light. I am now well above my primary gear change. That's an F. My primary gear change is around C sharp D. Hmm. So I'm well above that. But because of what I'm doing, I oh, no, this is a register violation if you like. Because How I'm, very dare you. Yeah, because I'm going above. If I if I don't do anything and I do, um, I actually allow the register change to happen. Ah, there, that's what happens. Actually, even that one coming down, I still made it happen higher up. Hang on. Ah, that's better. So you can hear that uh, that is a very, very distinct shift from M1 to M2 and back again. It's got a lovely yodel flip, two yodel flips, in fact. Yeah, and if I slow that down, you'll hear that the yodel goes in different directions, depending on what direction I'm going in. Uh... But I can disguise it. So I could do the one I started with, which is to go to take the M1 up higher, more easily, less breath pressure. Um, I'm hardly doing anything else, really. I'm just backing off the pressure a bit. Uh, All M1. And now if I do the opposite, which is to go into M2, but disguise it a bit better. I was in M243 of those notes. And I'm sitting next to him. Yeah. And I couldn't really hear it, but he could feel it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Definitely. So if you're listening to this, it would be really interesting to know who heard it. Yes. God help the outcasts hungry from birth. Now, just before we tell you what that is, do you hear M1 or M2? Do you hear head voice? Do you hear chest voice? Do you hear falsetto? Do you? I mean, what label would you put on that? Because I know what label I'd put on it. Do you want me to say? Yeah. That's mechanism one. Mechanism one. Yep. So that's, that's my that's my quiet chest voice. Yes, that's mechanism one on B flat four. Hmm. Yeah. Do you want to do mechanism two? I'll have a go. Okay. 
You may need to do some cutting and pasting here. <laughs> God help the outcasts hungry from birth. That is all mechanism two. And Gillian is very good at taking a clearer, stronger sound right down to C4. And one of the giveaways for me is that because it's slightly looser and there's less resistance at vocal fold level, some of you will have noticed that I had to take a breath in the middle. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, if I chose to sing that phrase in my mechanism too, I would probably need to take in a larger volume of air so that I could control that flow a bit better if I wanted to do it in one breath. Can you switch between the two <laughs> at some point and make it match? It was superb. Thank you. Yes. We didn't rehearse this. No, not at all. Um, this is really interesting because did you hear where Gillian moved from the mechanism two to the mechanism one? It was actually between the two phrases. It was. Yes. We'll, so, let, them, we'll let them respond to that. the outcast. So she's on F4 there and she does F4 and M2 and then F4 and M1. Yeah, on Hungry. Yeah. Excellent. Cool. Well, so, that was putting our heads above the parapet. Yeah, absolutely. So what's really interesting about mixing is that mixing, first of all, can be done on either an M1 or an M2. And mixing really is acoustic. It's um, resonance plus possibly breath pressure. But what it isn't is vocal folds. And when we're talking about breath pressure, we mean subglottal pressure. And the level of resistance. I think it's also supraglottal pressure. So mm. you've got down downflow as well. Um, and one of the things that we've been talking about is, in a way, this is why classical operatic female singers say that you can't take chest voice high because it will be damaging. And the thing is that given, and I've, we've said this um, somewhere else, given the vocal setup, the resonance shape and the breath pressure and the backflow and the downflow, given all of that setup in order to take your uh, M2 and make it really powerful for operatic singing, you definitely do not want to hold that shape and that breath pressure when you're taking M1 higher. This is It just won't work. It will overload you really, really quickly. Because the subglottal pressure is going up already, isn't it? Yeah. So, yes, they're right in that if they want, if they want to sing in with their uh, resonance spaces and with their vocal setups in an M1 that goes higher, that is not good for them. But the interesting thing is commercial, contemporary commercial singers and musical theatre singers, gospel singers, you know, folk singers, all of these people don't use that particular resonating shape mm. to take an M1 higher. They change the shape. Mm. Mm. And again, that was one of the, the things that really led me to Mixing is not about the vocal folds. Mixing is about the resonating spaces and the breath pressure. Yeah. You know, when people talk to us about mixing, we always say, uh, what are you mixing with what? Uh, can you do it unmixed first? And can you do it mixed? Yeah. And that's actually quite a useful way to find out what your student is doing or what um, someone's talking about. I just want to clarify, because um, you've talked a lot about um, backflow and back pressure. Mm -hmm. We have um, aerodynamic back pressure. Mm -hmm. And we also have um, acoustic downstream effects, don't we? Because the sound is actually moving back and forth. The sound wave is moving back and forth in the vocal tract. And that can um, be enormously helpful 
in helping us to disguise register. So um, we acknowledge that register shifts our acoustic as well as mechanical yes. events. Yes. Um, I'm going to make a, a rather sweeping statement, but this is my experience over the last few years. When up until about three or four years ago, when men were talking about mixing, if they even talked about it at all, they were talking about a finer M1, a finer modal, to take that up higher but still stay in M1. When women talk about mixing, they are usually talking about mixing on an M2 downwards. And so the, the skill, if you like, is to match the power of your M1 going up with your M2 coming down. And really, that's that bit in the middle that I think was re referred to in the 19th century, or even very late 18th. Mm -hmm. um, 19th. It was the beginning of the 19th, when people were talking about the middle register. Mm. When I'm, Whenever I hear classical singers talking about the middle register, female classical singers, they are doing M2 and bringing the head voice downwards and wanting power there. And it's this middle area between, let's say, E4 and B flat 4, somewhere around oh, there. Even up as far as, as uh, C5. No, Hence, hang on, hang on. Things have changed. No, Things no, have changed. No, no, no. Hence, in classical singing, yeah. the zona di passaggio. Okay. Now, what Jeremy was going to there is that what, what's been um, not, not so much discovered, but because of the practice of uh, particularly contemporary commercial music singing, we know that that um, middle area, if you like, can go right the way up to C5, D5, sometimes even E flat 5 in the female voice. So it's still a mechanism one. In M1. Yeah. Yes. That's in, what you were in, going to say, weren't well, you? Well, it, yeah. it is. Mm. But it also the men have changed. This is really interesting because I've had a new influx of students now who are going through, who have just been through training mm. um, in, in colleges. And now they're talking about their mix as being a falsetto, as being an M2 mix. And they want power in the M2. And this is new as far as I'm concerned with the people I'm working with. So this is very interesting that the I think the female influence has, has gone on to the male people now. And then, then there is another subset, which is rock. And so many of the rock men are singing in a really strong, powered, bright M2 and making it sound like M1. Mm. So there's a whole area of... This is, in a way, why we're so interested in the names that people call things and what's going on underneath them. What are the vocal folds themselves doing? Mm. Interesting. I mean, I think there are, there are some huge cultural changes going on, aren't there, in terms of... I'm just going to use the word gender as in terms of gender expectations of voices and people's biological sex um, and how they want to use their voices. That's changing. And I mm. think that will inform how we think about register mechanisms in the future in the same way that um, I think research into contemporary commercial music has informed our understanding of registers, simply because the early research into registers was all predicated on the male voice. And we know that the male voice, uh, this is the biological uh, male sex, is not um, the norm in... Oh, crikey. <laughs> Um, crikey, did I say that? It's not the norm in terms of the life cycle of the voice because of the exponential change um, during puberty. Let's just unpack that for a moment because we are going to get we're going to get comments on this. I one. dug myself the biggest hole. I think I know how to get out of it. Though, okay, go. Because I love the way that um, colleagues across the pond talk about voices being testosterone influenced or not. Yeah, I like that too. 
So that's the big change. Anyway, that is a completely other conversation. And it's also one of our pop-ups coming up, isn't what it? What I want to say, and this is, in a way, this hopefully will... Should we go will, and hide now? No, no, no. This will also underline what Juliana said, mm. which is if there is no testosterone influence... Um, then the child voice and the female adult voice are actually very close together in terms of range, in terms of where the register mechanisms change. They're very, very close together. Uh, they might not be close together in timbre, but they are close together in range and mechanism issues. It's a much more linear progress of growth. Yes. Whereas the male voice, the testosterone-led voice, um, the moment testosterone hits, there are all sorts of changes that are exponentially bigger. Mm. And therefore, the range changes and the register issues change. Mm, mm. Well, I kind of want to conclude with something that I really liked, which I read on Instagram the other day. And it was a quote from an interview with Elizabeth Ann Benson, who's the author of Training Contemporary Commercial Singers. Hi, Elizabeth. Uh, Yes, uh, published by uh, Compton, uh, to which I contributed amongst many other voice trainers. Some really nice work there, Elizabeth, and, and well done for navigating all the challenges of uh, an edited book. Um, my understanding from what you said in the interview was, do we really want a common terminology or do we just want to be right? Mm. Thank you for that. Very nice. Because I think the important thing is that if we're going to talk about names and labels for um, register experiences, we as teachers need to be prepared to be multi-lexical. I do think, certainly in our practice, we feel that we benefit from the understanding of what register mechanisms are. Mm -hmm. But in our practice as teachers, we will use lots of um, different labels according to what our students think and feel. Working with the person in the room. So, in conclusion, mechani- the, the mechanism, <laughs> the mechanism one and mechanism two, the, the, you know, the, the definition of registers as a, a laryngeal mechanical event for us is very useful. Mm-hmm. But remember to change your mind is human. Mm-hmm. And who knows where we'll be, um, how we'll be thinking of that in 10 years time. There's something. Uh, there's something I wanted to add to that. That was my conclusion. That was your conclusion. Mm, I know, okay, but there's right. still something I want to add because I think it's important. We live in a world of comparison. Mm. The, if, if you like, the entire world is built on comparison. So you have black, white, right, right, wrong, light, dark. You know, daylight, nighttime. There are there are comparisons there, and I think the most important thing is whatever language somebody uses, it's. If they want to make them definitive, I immediately go, so what's the opposite of it? Mm. So what's the different version of it? So can you show me or sing me or tell me why that one is your label and not this one? Because this one is different. And if you understand about comparison and putting things side by side, you go, oh, I see how that's similar or I see how that's different. And in our world, we go, I see why you're saying that. Mm -hmm. And I'm still listening underneath and going, Mm -hmm. that's an M1 vibration or that's an M2 vibration. And we do this on the M1, M2 workshop. Mm. Um, So if you want to call it that, we're fine with that. We'll call it that along with you in Mm -hmm. your session. Mm -hmm. We know what's going on underneath. And we know, therefore, that you must be doing some particular shaping or breath pressure or sound production that is making that thing come out that you're calling that name. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. It's simply no good being, um, you know, 
label police. Mm. Not when you're teaching, because your job is to work with the singer in the room. Singer in the room. Are we done on this topic? Well, we're done for the moment. I suspect we that could we're going be to... very, very done. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect that we might have some comments. So, if we do have comments, um, two things that you can do: one is just let us know. You can email us info at vocalprocess.co.uk, or preferably, you can send us a um, an audio message on speakpipe.com/vocalprocess. Oh uh, yes, yeah. send us your AMAs because wasn't it great that we had that question? Yes, from on Kurt. the article that. Yes. that really really was the thing that sparked us off to do this particular podcast. Yes. If you think we haven't covered anything, send us a speak pipe and mm. we will do it um, on the next podcast. If we don't get enough of your comments, we won't do it on the next podcast. We'll do something else instead. Mm. Right. I think we're done. I think we're done. Thank you very much for listening. Okay. Bye. This is A Voice, a podcast with Dr. Gillian Kays and Jeremy Fisher.